to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast with four friends, four theologians from four different countries and three different continents where we talk Neo-Calvinism, theology and culture. My name is Marinus de Jong, I'm a pastor of the Oosterparkkerk in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and an assistant professor at the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute in Kampen Utrecht. With me is Corey Brock, um, pastor of St. Columbus Free Church and lecturer at Edinburgh Theological Seminary. So James Eglinton, Senior Lecturer of Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh, and Gray Sutanto, Assistant Professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. So, welcome back, everybody, for this uh, fourth episode of Season 3. Um, last time we no already two episodes we have been discussing um the book by uh cory and gray neo-calvinism a theological introduction or maybe if not discussing the book we use the chapters as themes that guide our discussions so today we take the fourth chapter which is on revelation and reason um and so i guess a question would be for to get this conversation going is so what is very central a chapter heading could have been general revelation because that's kind of uh, what a chapter is about so maybe Corey you can just help um, those who haven't read the book yet um, to just briefly outline like what is the argument you propose in the chapter what is the new Calvinist view of general revelation so I think general revelation is one of the most important topics to talk about in terms of uh, Neo-Calvinist distinctiveness in terms of uh, the development of theology in in the midst of modernity, and uh, one of the the key things to say probably at the beginning is that the Neo-Calvinist tradition has a fairly traditional doctrine of general revelation, so uh, a very orthodox doctrine of general revelation, as we like to say, and that's that um, God does reveal Himself objectively in the life of the world. Um, However, what's distinctive, and I think what's an important development, and Gray will be able to speak um, uh, more about this, is the fact that uh, with the 19th century turn to focusing on the human subject and the relationship that theology has to philosophy in the 19th and 18th centuries, uh, particularly idealism and romanticism, the romantic movement, Somebody like Schleiermacher is at the heart of, of both of those movements. Uh, there's a real focus on the subjective dimension in neo-Calvinism of general revelation. So uh, Bob Inc. makes really clear that um, God reveals himself both objectively in the world, the life of the world, but also subjectively, uh, directly, immediately, he even says, uh, to the human being. And so <clears throat> that's where the beginning of the distinctiveness, I think, starts and it carries us forward to this idea that the first way someone knows God, even from the womb, is not by way of reasoning. So it's not by way of uh, judgments uh, based on uh, representations and impressions that we get from our sense experience, but that the first way we know God is through a feeling, uh, is, is what the neo-Calvinist first generation said. So the question then becomes, well, what is feeling, and uh, how do we define that exactly? Are we talking here about emotions, that we, we know God first through our emotions, or something more than that? And uh, it, it's a more than that. It's, it's not uh, a doctrine of emotion. 
exclusively. It's something much more significant. And so um, both Gray and I have wor worked on this subject as, as part of our PhDs from very different angles. Gray uh, focused really on the epistemology and on a, a, a theology of knowledge pretty holistically, whereas I uh, focused on the historical theological development of this doctrine through their relationship to Schleiermacher and idealism and um, the 19th century movements and philosophy in Germany especially. So we both... Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time on this subject in different ways and from different angles. And Gray helpfully um, wrote the majority of this chapter, um, but you can see, you know, Schleiermacher is the icing on top if you read through it uh, pretty carefully. So um, that, that's kind of an, an early introduction to it. But we, we maybe we want to talk more about uh, the, this concept of feeling or the effective dimension of knowing God and then all that that could possibly mean for uh, application like in apologetics and, and other things like that would be something we're saying but um, maybe I'll see if Gray wants to add some introductory thoughts too. Yeah thanks so much for that Corey. I think one of the things that we can say to just sort of clarify what Bavik means by intuition or feeling to build off what Corey just said there is that Bavink I think presupposes here and so did Kuiper the distinction between an affect on the one hand and an emotion on the other. And Corey already made this, this distinction. But an emotion has a particular kind of object and it moves and kind of, there's a stirring of the heart there, an inclination towards something. Affect is a more basic category. I think they took the category of affect from the post-Kantian tradition, which says that when we think about concepts, concepts work on intuitions and affects. So Kant made a distinction between intuitions that we receive from the world that was not yet pre that was not yet conceptualized or categorized by the human understanding. Right? So an intuition is a bare affect from the world that awaits the mind's working, that awaits the mind's categorization or conceptualization. Without that conceptualization, that affect tells us that there is a kind of dependence on the world. There's a kind of world intuition, Kant says but it's not yet epistemologically received or conceptualized by the faculty of human understanding. And so I think this is a really helpful distinction for Bavink when he comes to, for instance, the proofs of God's existence in Reformed Dogmatics, Chapter 2 for, um, yeah, I think Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2, sorry, chapter, chapter on the chapter on the knowledge of God. He says there that when we talk about the proofs of God's existence, these proofs are not the grounds of our faith, but rather they are the results of faith. And he even says that they are explications or explanations of the religious consciousness that is in the human heart. So he argues that we first feel that there is a God, or we're conscious that we're dependent on this God. And because of that, we have a religious consciousness, and our mind gets to work on that religious consciousness and starts to explicate that religious consciousness in terms of, let's say, God the Creator, and therefore, we come up with the cosmological argument, or in terms of, let's say, God, the moral lawgiver, in terms of the moral argument for God's existence. So the proofs are not the first moment where we feel or intuit that there is a God, but the proofs are the results of that basic intuition. So I like to say in that chapter and also in previous works that um, thinking about God is always a second moment. Natural theology is therefore distinguished from general revelation. We know God or feel God, intuit God first by general revelation, 
And then our mind gets to work in categorizing and representing and making arguments to explicate the fact that we felt God in the first place. So when we make these natural theological arguments, we're not moving from a lack of knowledge to knowledge or ignorance to arguments, but rather we move from a unconscious affect or feeling on the one hand to a more represented and categorized understanding of that God. So it's, it's a spectrum of feeling or intuiting or knowing God rather than ignorance to knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's helpful, Gray, and also Corey. Um, I really thought this was a very illuminating chapter, and it, it struck me once again how, how much the new Calvinism that I was brought up in um, did not have this element at all. And I've, I've been thinking about this earlier because, of course, I've seen in Bavink before and also in, 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 your, in your books that this, this like holistic... Um, effective and uh, effective anthropology is really um, part of of Kuiper and also Baving, but it's it's struck me that st- still strikes me how much it's it always feels new to me and not part of my new Calvinist inheritance. We can maybe dig into it a little bit more later, but but l- let me let me ask um, one question of clarification. So um, towards the end of your chapter, you you kind of summarize and then you say that general revelation has effective dimensions that need to be taken seriously. That's on page 96. But when I read it, I was like, is it, do you say that general revelation has effective dimensions or is an effective category? Um, because to me, it seemed the way you presented it, it, it's more the second than the first. That's a great question. I think uh, it's both in the sense of we don't want to deny that there is an acquired knowledge of God to be to be acquired by reasoning, right? So Bobbing interestingly says, the knowledge that we get from creation is always acquired, both in that implanted internal sense by way of affection, and then by way of discursive reasoning, secondly. So I think when we take a look at the older reform tradition, um, there's always a combination of these two, uh, I, I, but in, in a pre-Kantian sort of understanding. And the emphasis usually, though, is on that second sense of, a discursive way of knowing God by way of reasoning to God from affects to cause, if that makes sense. Um, So how do we know God from creation? You get language from Calvin and Junius about how we're masters of the knowledge of God, the sense of the divine from our mother's womb. And so it's not a cognitive sense of knowing or a conscious source of reasoning kind of knowledge. But then you get in, say, Tiritan or Van Maastricht, later reforms, classics, more of an emphasis on the sort of discursive knowledge that we can gain by reasoning from creation as an effect to God as a cause of, of everything. And also they talk about the consent of the nations, empirically speaking. So we want to say that the affective is first and primary, given what Bobbing and Kuiper says. And yet we don't want to deny that there is that possibility of discursive knowing, but that discursive knowing is always a secondary sort of moment. The argument for the effective is something like this, that feeling is a, an aspect of knowing for Bob Inc. and Kuiper, as it was for the 19th century, uh, many of the 19th century romantics. And the way it works is that feeling is just the description of knowledge that is not mediated by sense experience, largely. So, um, so the first thing that we, the reason that we can talk about the baby uh, and this feeling or knowledge or knowledge as feeling of God 
is because, uh, as they argue, the first object of feeling is self-consciousness, right? So, in other words, um, the self, you know, who I am, my identity as a self is not something I can see. It's not something I can experience through my empirical senses, right? Um, but I do know it. I know that I exist. But I know I, I exist in a way that's different from the way I know, you know, the building across the, the street I can see right now through my window exists. Um, and so I, I feel, I have a feeling uh, for self-consciousness. Um, it's immediate. It's not mediated to me by, by sense experience. Well, they're riffing a little bit off Kant here because Kant said that um, there are several things that we know, uh, well, Kant denied that they were knowledge, but um, that, that, we have to, uh, that we have to know, quote unquote, that we can't experience. And, and so the self was one of them, the world was another. The third was God. So, you know, you have self, world, and God, all three objects that you can't see. You know, you can't see the world, uh, not in any, any holistic way, but yet you, you know it exists. And for Bavink and Kuiper, Bavink in particular, the idea is that uh, we know uh, by way of feeling through, through dependency, right? So we're dependent upon things relatively out in the world. But we know God immediately from the earliest days by way of dependence, by way of absolute de a feeling of dependence, something that's not experienced since with, with our sensations, but a knowledge we have uh, even even communicated to us through the dependence we have on our mothers, a relative dependence, right? And that relative dependence leads us to an absolute dependence, uh, which is a feeling, a knowledge as feeling, not a knowledge as empirical experience. Right, so that's kind of the starting point of the concept of feeling. So ultimately, it is feeling as absolute dependence that leads us to our own reflection on the knowledge of God. Right, in terms of subjective revelation. Right, we're talking here in terms of subjective revelation. But then that's conjoined with objective revelation, right? And in that, uh, we can then reason about uh, the knowledge of God through our sensations, through things we experience out in the world. Uh, through the things that we're relatively dependent on. Uh, but I think the important thing that Gray was pointing out there is that um, it's, you know, people will say things like, you know, two plus two equals four. That's general revelation. You know, you'll hear, you'll hear things like that. And what we're saying is, no, it's not. <laughs> that's uh, human judgment. That's, uh, that's thinking. That's, uh, now, the reason you can think like that is because of God's revelation. But God's revelation is what God does. A revelation is God's activity. It's uh, And then the response we have is knowing God. Uh, so revelation, general revelation, is the secret of everything. It's the secret of the possibility of knowledge, absolutely. But saying things like mathematical facts or judgments about you know the universe or something, scientific facts, those are not general revelation. Um, they are they are judgments that we make through observation that are that are an an aspect of human reasoning, right? And so they're, they're different. And natural theology is the same. So people will make a statement about natural theology and say, that's general revelation. And what we want to say is, no, it's not general revelation. It's reflection upon revelation and the unity of objective and subjective revelation. Uh, so we, we combine those two worlds and then we think, and then we make judgments about God, like he's the first cause or something like that. 
but saying God's the first cause is not general revelation. It's reflection upon, gen upon general revelation. And that's a, a key distinction because it, it really very regularly in the Reformed tradition today is confused. And people will, will say um, that what they say about God is general revelation. And, uh, of course, just like we say in, in our theology built on special revelation, that what we say in dogmatics is not, uh, is not revelation, it's theology. It's uh, that there's a difference there, right? Uh, we don't pretend that our our dogmatics is revelation, um, and so we, we have to apply the same thing to what we say about general revelation. We're responding to it. We're not producing it, right? I ended the conversation. That was fabulous. I love it. <laughs> or boring. No, no, that was fantastic. Very clear. Yeah, it's indeed very clear. Um, just as clear as the entire chapter. So it's very good. Um, so it, one thought I had while, while reading, um, so is this, is this idea of general, if, if I got this well, you have to correct me if I'm wrong. So is this what Barmik and Kuiper are doing here? Is, is making general revelation like um, continuously something God is doing? So this, this, uh, this affect is not innate, Although you sometimes use the word, and maybe they also do it. So I was yeah. confused sometimes. Um, so yeah. because it should not be, you, you, if I'm right, you shouldn't say innate, but you should say like it's it's given always, right? It's something that God like continuously is revealing himself to all people. Um, and this, it seems to me, also helps against a kind of deistic um, a kind of natural theology is saying, no, there's just like stuff hanging around here independent of God, um, which we can use and um, which we can then use and, and build the natural theology on. This also like keeps the connection to the living God who's just speaking actively to yeah. all people and also the connection, the, the, the active connection of the entire world to God intact. And I, I really, I really think that is, if, if I'm right in, in the way I summarize, I see you nodding, so I probably am. Um, I th I, then I think that, that this is if, if indeed a very strong and helpful thing in a world where we don't view the world in that way and we, we don't think that, like, even Christians don't think that God, like, is actively um, engaging with people, all people, um, um, who are born and who live even outside of the realm of, of, of special revelation. God is not far from every one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Exactly. Uh, this yeah. is the doctrine of the common operation of the Spirit. So the common operation of the Spirit, as Calvin lays out for us, is exactly yeah. what we're referring to in the ubiquity of general revelation and the agency of God in general revelation, right? So, yeah, I mean, you said it very well, Marines, yeah. is exactly yeah. what we're, we're suggesting. Um, so, and, and it protects against all sorts of things, including as you said, deism. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. And so, I, you know, you connected that to a sort of deistic view of natural theology. So actually in some of my classes, I try to make a distinction between two models of natural revelation. So the first model is what I call a treasure hunting approach where God has disclosed himself out there somewhere and it's up to us to diligently go and find it, reason well properly about the universe, find the empirical evidences that God is the designer of the universe. So now, from now on, I think, Marinus, I might use your words, that this is a deistic model of natural revelation. But then the second one is what uh, I would call a drowning in the ocean model, where revelation is all around you. You're actually swallowing it all the time, precisely because God is all-encompassing and he is all around you, surrounding you. 
And so we have to resist God or we have to go with the tide of that revelation, if that makes sense. So I think this goes well with what, for instance, uh, Johann Bavink is saying in his Christian faith and religious consciousness in the reader or even in the material personality and worldview that we got from James. It's a very Augustinian insight. And in fact, Bavink does connect that Kantian sense of intuition, the world intuition to Augustine in his, I think, chapter on the unconscious in the essays in religion, science, and, and society, he says that from Kant, we have this restoration of the Augustinian insight that there's an inner sense, that inner sense that Augustine is all it's wrestling with in the Confessions, and even in books like De Trinitate or City of God, he talks about this light that is in us, that when we go away from the world and we look inside, there is this sense, this pressure, that and my heart is restless unless I'm wrestling with this idea and I'm, I don't want it to be true, but yet it's there. What is this that is in my soul? Bobbing even calls it the starting point of a new metaphysic and philosophy of revelation. So because of this d- dynamic, ongoing, active work of God by his Holy Spirit in general, the common operations, there is no human being that is untouched by God and we're all running away from God in some way, if we're unbelievers. And even as Christians, we're wrestling with it all the time. There's a psychological dimension that's very important to this idea of general revelation, that impact of general revelation. Yeah, this is all really helpful. Um, Just to backtrack for a second in the conversation, another common thing that this is a very useful counterbalance to or corrective to, when we're thinking about the universal striving of the Holy Spirit with all people and this this inner revelation of God to all people, um, I, I quite often come across people who take that to assume that, you know, because of the ubiquity of that, how we exercise our reason, let's say, how we theologize is just very relative and it doesn't matter. And basically all people everywhere are fine because there there is this universal thing going on in the background. But um, this chapter, this neo-Calvinist way to think about the relationship of revelation to um, to reason is, is just great. I, I find it really helpful to read as well. So I have a question about how we start to think about what this looks like translated into you know real life conversations uh, and helping Christians understand let's say, um, secular, progressive Western people who think that they're very irreligious and also vice versa and helping that kind of person understand Christianity. Okay. So some kind of active translation. Um, so I don't think in the chapter that, that you mention explicitly, although we've talked about it in this conversation, that as well as self-consciousness and God consciousness that in, in Bavink, for example, we do also find him using the language of world consciousness as well. Uh, Corey already alluded directly to Kant there, that that there are these three things that, that, that we have. And, and Gray, you were just talking about an intuition about the world as well. Um, how does this help us to understand, um, for example, someone who insists that, yes, I have self-consciousness, and that's not a controversial claim. I affirm that about myself. Yes, I have world consciousness. I intuit that there is a world there. And, and I have some kind of feeling that there is a world. And nobody has to prove that to me. That's precognitive. It's pre-verbal. And on that basis, I move on to something like a world knowledge, um, just like I want to move from self-consciousness to self-knowledge. But if the same person says, but I have absolutely no God consciousness, um, that's just a, a void in how I think about this. Um, and if you're thinking about this in a you know, neo-Calvinist, um, Herman Bavink, Abraham Kuyper, J.H. Bavink, going all the way back to maybe Paul and Romans, one way of trying to think about this, that actually within every human, 
there is a titanic struggle going on in that God reveals himself continually in the way that you're describing in this chapter within every single human being. But the shape of uh, human life is the attempt to suppress that knowledge of God. Um, Again, knowledge um, and and revelation in the way that you define it carefully in the chapter. And, and you know, something that you highlight in the chapter is that this is actually something that we do um, without realizing that we're even doing it. Um, what, so if we're thinking of it in those terms, what does it mean for the integrity of what it means to be human in our ongoing existence? If we're taking something as fundamental, as innate, um, as self-consciousness, and we're playing that against something that's also as innate and as fundamental as our God consciousness. Um, does this equip us to make a lot more sense of, um, you know, if, if we're Christians and we're engaging with people who insist that they don't have God consciousness at all, for example? Like, what will that look like for how you do apologetics or preaching, for example? Um, I think there's, there's many ways where we can try to point this out. So I think one of the purposes of apologetics is not to... It's not just data information, right? In other words, we're not trying to move somebody from ignorance to more knowledge about God because they already know God. So the point of apologetics is to expose the non-believer that they already have a sense of God, that they already know God, and so they're not actually neutral. They were never on the fence. They were not just looking at the data in a neutral fashion. They're already wrestling with this idea from the very beginning. And the reality is from Romans chapter 1, right, we don't want God to exist because we are dependent on this God and yet also accountable to him. We feel the wrath of God from creation. So we don't want that to be true because that's a terrifying, vulnerable place to be in. So I think the way we can try to show that in apologetics, one, one helpful way, there's many ways, but but at least right now what comes to mind is Johann Bobbing's magnetic points, right? So the way we can show that we do have a religious consciousness is that everybody feels this desire for belonging, for instance, a belonging to a higher community. But everybody feels that there's a problem with oneself, that we can't belong, that there's always something that is judging us, whether it's the social dynamics from the world, which I think points to a higher dynamic between us and a higher power. We feel the sense of guilt and anxiety because of our the way in which we fail to live up to our own standards to ourselves, the way in which we wrong others. And that all points to the fact that there's not there's something wrong with us and there's a problem between us and our maker. So um, those are some of the ways in which we can try to expose an unbeliever. Okay, you say that you have no religious consciousness and yet there's all these normativity that is guiding your life. And that normativity is not grounded in empirical sciences. You can't sense it. You can't perceive it. You can't uh, touch it. You can't taste it. And yet it guides you. It informs you. And it's something that points you beyond the self and also beyond the world, because there's nothing in the world where you can point to, again, empirically speaking, and say, this is where I get my sense of belonging. This is where I get my sense of normativity. Nor does it come simply from the self, because if it just comes from the self, all you have to do is just change your mind, and then that feeling goes away. But it doesn't. Um, there's something, there's an external pressure on you all the time. So I think Johann Bobbing's work is really helpful here. The second thing I would say is, therefore, it puts apologetics within the same spectrum as counseling. So when you're getting counseling from somebody, for instance, you know, a good counselor doesn't just tell you what you're wrestling with. They try to bring it out of you yourself. And they don't, they don't just you know, tell you, here's what you need to bring out, out of yourself. They ask you questions. 
they take your answers with a sort of grain of salt to try to bring it out of you so that you could come to a kind of self-realization that this is something that you've known all the time, if that makes sense, right? That things that happened to you in your childhood, things that happened to you in your past relationships actually had formed you and you implicitly knew it, but sometimes it hurts you to acknowledge that it's there, if that makes sense. So the work of apologetic is, is, is a kind of heart surgery sort of work. It's very pastoral. And I think if you go with the so-called classical approach, you won't be able to attune yourself to that pastoral listening dimension because there's something something in that classical approach where in practice anyway, like the, the non-believer is saying something, there's just this impatience where you just want to pull out the cosmological argument. <laughs> Have you considered that everything that has a beginning has a cause? Boom, you know, we get to God as a first cause. Well, what about these empirical evidences for design? But I think in this sort of neo-Calvinist apologetic, it's very pliable. I think any Christian who has a good sense of theology and a good sense of human experience can do apologetics because it's a conversation now. You're listening to the person and you want to really attend to what they're saying because what they're saying exposes an attitude of the heart that you want to bring out and make explicit in some way. So just for some initial thoughts. Yeah, one of the thoughts I had, James, as you were talking, was just Bavink's opening to the Christ, to Christian worldview, where he talks about how the in the early 20th century he perceived such a uh, disordered self amongst the masses as, as people deny God consciousness and then find that it, it produces psychological disruption of all sorts. And that was one of the reasons he was writing the book. So, you know, you were just talking about what, what this kind of produces in the culture um, and, um, we're still, we're still walking through that season. Right. Um, but I mean, yeah, I thought Grace's answer was so helpful. I mean, one of the things, ways I think about it is just, it helps us to understand that the whole person has got to be treated. Um, and I always like to talk about apologetics as, uh, that there has to be an, an affective dimension. There has to be a rational dimension and there has to be a community dimension. You know, the whole person has got to be treated in those ways. And, um, and I just find that, you know, it, it's very rare to, to merely focus on the rational and have that bring people along at all. And, and so I think what, we're, what we have here in the neo-Calvinist tradition is the background for why that is and then the resources for approach. And um, so I, I found it personally liberating to, to have a kind of metaphysical or, or theological um, account of exactly what's happening to us and in us that makes so much more sense of this apologetic work uh, that, that I find to be so much more productive than the um, kind of classical way, if you will. Um, and so, but also I think what we're offering here cuts through a lot of the debates that have happened between, you know, kind of the Thomas Van Til sort of stuff. And um, can we say it? Can, can we say that we have, we have another way here on offer? Um, a third way. Would perhaps. that be a third way there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to use these words anymore, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's something different. Uh, and I think, uh, wrestling with the account that Bavink and Johan Bavink give are, uh, together get, give something that, that we really haven't had as, as clear cut until now, uh, or a reflection on them has brought forward in recent years. That, yeah, thanks. Those, those are really uh, helpful answers. Another thing that um, came to mind when I read this chapter is how the way that you bring together revelation and reason 
might map onto another very useful conceptual distinction within neo-Calvinism, which is between world vision and worldview. Uh, so listeners who don't know what I mean by that, um, you have a few ways to find out. You can go and buy the book, uh, Personality and Worldview by J.H. Bavinck, that has just literally just come out. Um, that I translated, it's just been published by Crossway. Um, so it's a distinction from that book. Um, or you can go back to probably season one of the podcast. We did an episode on worldview where I described the difference between the two. But anyway, in a, in a, in a very tiny nutshell, um, worldview, though you're thinking about a subjective, quite untested set of assumptions of the world that you can live by, it's like a compass rather than a map world. Uh, that's world vision, I should say. Um, Worldview is much more comprehensive. It's closer to the objective truth about the world. And um, it's much more like a map than a compass. And it takes a lot of time to build up. And you actually have to do a lot of testing of your assumptions, uh, of your presuppositions, of your intuitions, and so on. So in J.H. Baving's way of thinking, everyone has a world vision. Very few people have a world view. Um, with the way that, that you guys write this chapter is, um, well, yeah, how, how does it map onto world worldview and the uh, world vision i should say as, as a starting point for all human life um and then um how do you progress from that onto worldview great question james maybe to take a first stab at it um and then i want to come back to Corey's comment for a little bit as well um i think there is definitely the same sort of inclinations here in the sense of for johan bobbing the process of creating a worldview is a process. Again, it's a developmental, slow, inductive process, and hence world vision to worldview. There is a spectrum there. And in the same way, affect to conscious knowing or theoretical knowing, there is still also a spectrum there as well. Knowledge is just not just a, it's not a, um, you know, if you take, for instance, a movie reel, it's not like there's there's pictures and then there's gaps between the pictures and then there's one picture and then there's another picture, right? But there's rather a fluid sense of moving from pre-conscious knowing or pre-theoretical knowing on the one hand and then theoretical knowing on the other. And then there's a process between world vision to world view. But I, I do want to say that general revelation precedes even world visions because world visions is a take on the world that is already situated within one's own spatio-temporal context and conditioned by that context. Whereas general revelation is first and foremost about God and one's consciousness before God, which forms the backdrop and is therefore the precondition for us to develop a world vision, which is already the result of suppressing what we know about God in some way. So another helpful thing that Johann Bobbing talks about is that because we know from general revelation that we're accountable and yet we're judged by God at the same time, our suppression of the truth will look like modifying either the, 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 the accountability part, so God is not that angry at us, or by modifying the dependence part. Oh, God might be sovereign, but not so sovereign over this area of my life. Or in polytheism, God is sovereign over there, but not sovereign over here. And so I'm, I'm less dependent on that God in some way. So because in general revelation, we feel dependence and accountability, in our suppression, we tweak and lower down that dependence or accountability, which produces our little world vision, which I think in the world vision that we normally have that we begin with, we think that we're better than we really are. We think that our sense of adjudicating within the world is the best way of attuning ourselves to the world. And so we look down on other people with different world visions when actually a whole worldview can accommodate um, the totality or the um, 
collection of these diversities of personalities, if that makes sense. So I think general revelation precedes the idea of a world vision. I was just going to say, would, wouldn't it be the case that we would want to say something like a world vision is necessarily a category uh, that is, is a product of, of the su- act of suppression? Would that, is that what Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And I think that the distinct way that that act of suppression occurs is something that, um, that orders um, and balances not necessarily well but um but it, it, it's, it's a way of um of ordering the different faculties of your soul for jh bevink the faculties of your inner life in terms of receptivity and what you uh, want to conserve conserve what you want to forget um what you want to desire um all, all that kind of stuff so actually yes yeah, so, so the, the ordering of, of those faculties and the way that they are um, allowed to um, exist either in, in some kind of good balance or, or actually really imbalanced way then shapes the the personality and if you lock yourself in your world vision then yeah you, you become quite a like a poorly integrated personality in the long term and and then that's you're starting to trace out the shape of how you go about suppressing um, your your knowledge of God, it can also be an act of suppressing your your knowledge of or your world consciousness as well, or even your self consciousness. Actually, people are all so differently imbalanced for JH Bavink. Yeah, and the one thing that I wanted to say in response to what something Corey said, I think now that I, you know teaching apologetics here, I've had to revisit Van Til quite a bit. I think there's a way to read Van Til where he is in conformity with the sort of things that we we're saying here, because he has this idea of the psychological knowledge of God. But as Scott Swain reminds me, Gray, if everybody read Bansell the way you do, things would be better. <laughs> but not very many people read Bansell the way you do. So, you know, point taken there. I read Bansell as consistent with the Scholastics and the Neo-Calvinists. But I think one of the worst things we could do with Bansell is isolating him from Bobbing and Kuiper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even, I mean, you articulated an apologetic earlier, Gray, that's very similar to Bansell. And, um, and, uh, and I think Van Til is at his best when he's talking to us about apologetics more than he is about, um, you know, the psychological dimensions of theology or historical theology, right? And uh, so, so there's there's obviously continuity there to some degree, but it's just a, how you interpret it. And and again, I think it, it's at its best when Van Til's kind of uh, supplemented or or um, filtered through Bobbing's categories. Um, it becomes he becomes actually more helpful. Uh, which may be the idiosyncratic reading. I don't know, but right. Swain is pointing out. But um, but I, I, I agree. I, I found that him to be more helpful after studying Bob Inc. and others so so closely and kind of reading him through their lens a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's all great. Um, let me let me make two two comments on what we what we said before. I've been just holding on to those two while you were talking about uh, the world of vision, and then and then I'll I'll move to a. Uh, to maybe a critical um, Skilderian reception of your chapter. Um, so first, I was when we were discussing like the apologetics application of all this um, um, of this view of general revelation. I also thought about conversations I have as a pastor with people who are coming to faith. Um, so um, these past month, I've been talking to a woman who wants to be baptized, and she she is going to be baptized very soon. Um, and for like for I find it this. Well, I, I thought about her reading your chapter because she has the experience that God has been talking to her all of her life, but she just did not have the tools or the way of reasoning to to 
to put that to words. Um, and and I affirmed to her um, that this is indeed God who has been talking to her all of her life, even while she wasn't aware of it. And that fact was for her very comforting. Um, so in in some ways, she 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 feels accompanied in many ways um, all of her life, and she feels that God has been with her. But she she just was raised in a completely atheist context, so she had no no way of addressing that or saying it. And now she when she, she she's taught um, from scripture, of course, and from special revelation, um, who God is, she recognizes all kinds of things she already felt. And for, from the deistic point of view, we could say, well, yeah, you were just like, you were just looking at remnants. But now we can say, no, 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 this was God talking to you, which is a much better and also fits much more how she ex- actually experienced um, um, those those first years of her life. So uh, yeah, I think this is just very very helpful. So for 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 talking to people who are mm-hmm. coming to faith, um, and yeah. then a second thought, which is different, is when you were talking about Augustine Gray. Um, what is interesting, and I also had the same uh, link. Of course, a lot of the well, there, there's it's obvious when when you talk about affections that we we think of Augustine, but this also makes I think that. Um, Although they draw from Schleiermacher and also from Kant, and it's, it's very romantic, as you also point out, even this romantic aspect they draw out of the philosopher of the time um, connects back to Augustine. So it's it's new and it's not new at the same time, which is, I think, maybe relating to our past episode, is a beautiful example of how this works, how they just draw from resources and philosophers of their time, but at the same time, um, speak in continuity with like Catholic Christianity, um, and it's exactly the same phrase of Psalm 42, where I had to think of two uh, great that we're just citing about our heart being, um, heart being uh, feeling the unrest in our heart until it finds rest in God. I think that that is ex- probably very close to what Schleiermacher uh, wanted to say, and of course Schleiermacher knew Augustine as well, so there there were all lines there. Um, yeah, so. Uh, these were two comments, and now and and now a third one. And move to to a little bit different, um, um, different way. This, this all this was received. So I, I've been thinking. I just mentioned that in the beginning. Why is it that this is so new to me? How is it possible mm. that me being raised in a new Calvinist uh, church and country uh, feels like this is not new Calvinist? And I think I speak for many people um, in my country. Uh, those who know new Calvinism will not think about holistic or effective anthropology um, they will think of rationalist um, and cultural and politics and, and all the other stereotypes that also uh, are recognized throughout I think uh, the world um, and well I think Schilder is to blame for that at least partly um, because also in his like in my, my window into uh, my route into New Calvinism, apart from my br- upbringing, was Schilder. Um, I mean, I, I, Schilder is the one I know better than than Bavik and Kuiper, and also before them. Um, so, and in in his work, we don't find this. There's not much talk about the effective. Um, uh, and I've been thinking about that um, again through your chapter, and I think I think about why that is. Um, so he's not. Arguing against this, I mean, he's he's critical of general revelation in general without really abandoning it, but um, just doesn't want to use the word anymore. Just like he doesn't want to use the word common grace. And I think why that is, and and I think I understand also his 
um, his his resistance better, um, having read your chapter, is is I think because he has a profound distrust distrust of the effective. Um, I do think he and 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 there may be also some some truth and some risk maybe of what you have what what Bavik and Kuiper proposed and what you have, have have given through, although the distinction between emotion and affect helps. Um, still, I think so. Schilder in his early career he read a lot of uh, literary. He was considered a literary scholar, so he read poems and and novels that just that like just came out in the Dutch context. What he found there is that, not very, not surprisingly, that like emotion and um, effectiveness was very to the forefront of of those minds. And, and what those people said was that effect um, or emotion or um, amazement or or um, no matter what word you want to say is a, is kind of is religion, you know. So that 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 having a positive emotion of wondering about something or being amazed is the core of what it means to be uh, what it means to be religious. So when Schilder reads those books, um, he 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 becomes more and more wary of focusing on the effect on the emotion because it becomes a deity in itself. It becomes an idol, um, and I think when he would read. Bavink and Kuiper on general revelation, as he um, most certainly did, he would say, "Oh, this is this is this may lead very well to the worshiping of our affects." And Schilder is just like Bart, only negative about Schleiermacher. It's just bad. Um, it's dangerous because it puts us on this trajectory. Um, and therefore, what Schilder does is only emphasize the objective side of revelation and not the subjective side. Um, and I think this explains in great deal why he thought general revelation is inherently risky um, and we should abandon the word because, I mean, I think he overreacted, let, let, let that be clear. Um, but I'm just, I'm just laying it out here to see if there's, there's some truth to it. Um, and I think he also saw the, the problem in his, in his culture, in the novels and the books he, he, uh, and the, the poems he read. But he, I think he also saw it in his church. Um, like in an, in an overly pietistic, experiential um, way of believing where scripture and maybe also the church just becomes secondary um, because like our, our emotion and effect is what matters most. I mean, you could easily, um, and this is also a question, like move this effective way God like speaks with us and move from general to special revelation. Um, and, and then how then does that relate to scripture? So... Um, yeah, well, I guess this is just something to, to, to put to the table. I'm, l I'm looking forward to hear what, what, what you think about that. How would you, how, how you, how you guys would respond to what Schiller uh, tables here? Well, I want to respond to what you said before that too. Uh, I love the story of, of the woman that you, you told, and um, it's such a helpful anecdote to, to put some uh, real life experience on the th on the theology that we're talking about. I mean, my response to that is if you associate uh, Romans chapter one general revelation as reason, then actually what you're doing is taking away the possibility of a story like that. And because you're, what you're doing is you're saying that what Paul means there is that to know God is to sit down and, you know, turn your head in the right direction and construct the proper syllogism so that you can uh, know God. And, and it means that very few people have actually ever known God and, and it would, it would negate 
what Paul says, I think there in, in, in her story, we, we hear exactly the opposite that, um, everyone does know God and, and we can say to someone exactly that, that God has been speaking to them their whole life, regardless of whether they ever conceptualized, uh, that through the use of reasoning or not. And that's such an important, even pastoral, uh, opportunity that's, that's taken away by associating revelation with, as reason, um, what was the second point you made, Marina? I had a thought on that too. I wanted to. Um, the one about Augustine and romantic oh, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, just to say that. Um, so in the in the book I did on on Schleiermacher and Bavink, I have a chapter called "Between." I think it's between between Augustine and Schleiermacher, between Kant and Augustine, something like that. One of those idealists and romantics and and, and Augustine, and, and kind of basically framed a thesis as. Uh, that this whole thing is, is just Augustinian as Augustinianism through the lens of modernity. So it's orthodox yet modern in that way. Um, that's kind of the big the big idea, really, of the book. Uh, and um, I think what we've said quite often. Uh, the Skilder thing, I just make maybe a couple comments very quickly, and then I'll let the other guys um, comment. Uh, but one is, I mean, it makes sense to me, all that you said, because uh, this doctrine of general revelation is dependent on and completely... Uh, associated with and interdependent upon a doctrine of common grace, right? So common grace is the, uh, the backbone. God's loving patience with the world um, is the reason that he uh, ubiquitously reveals himself to all peoples. It's, it's a product of his loving patience. Uh, so it's completely associated with common grace, Genesis 3, the Noahic covenant, um, all these things. And so if, if Skilder's uh, pushing back on common grace, it makes sense to me that this effective dimension would also be largely rejected or, or at least um, set aside in, in his work. Um, and then the other thing is just to say that he is right to pick up on the failure of romanticism and of, of most romantic theology, right? And that's that, um, that the effective became religion. And there's a way of reading Schleiermacher that way. Uh, some pe- A lot of people have. That's the majority reading you'll get from from people, you know, if you if you get taught about Schleiermacher in a kind of popular or a, not a popular level course, who who teaches Schleiermacher at a popular level, but um, in in like a seminary course or something like that, you're you're going to get kind of the Schleiermacher said the effective is religion, and um, whether or not he actually taught that, I, I don't I don't think he did, uh, but um, but that is certainly a direction it can go. Where the end game basically is that emotion is religion. Um, and so you, you have kind of art for art's sake, art for art's sake, and all that kind of stuff um, coming out of that. So he's right, he's right about that. I mean, they're, and, and so what Bob and, and Kuiper are doing is they're taking uh, helpful insights, the, the truths as far as they can find them in the Romantic movement, and then filtering them through an, a confessional theology and producing uh, what, what we've described, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I don't think Skilder was entirely wrong. It's just that I, I don't think you have to go as far as he did. So something that I I like about this chapter is the way that at the beginning um, you talk about how the neo-Calvinists have a romantic psychology, um, but it's with a lowercase r, and then you end the chapter with a focus on the kind of philosophical eclecticism that is all a part of this package as well that enables the neo-Calvinists, and not just philosophical, also theological, enables them to 
um, appreciate what's good that they find in figures like Schleiermacher, but without um, just going all in. And we can say the same for other figures who crop up in the chapter as well. Sigmund Freud is in this chapter when you're talking about J.H. Bavinck and suppression, for example. Um, so that process of eclecticism for these early neo-Calvinists is, is, as you guys have argued really persuasively in other works as well, it's principled eclecticism. So it's it's a process of discernment anyway. And this chapter is, is a really helpful um, foundation to lay down for people who are trying to think about what that looks like for them. Um, I have a couple of questions about bridges that, that we could build into other conversations on the basis of this neo-Calvinist view of um, revelation and reason. Okay, And um, one of them is is actually just building, it's not too far from the, the pastoral case that Marinus raised. Um, and that's, if we're thinking about revelation and, and reason in this way, does it open up any kind of fruitful avenue for conversation between neo-Calvinists and charismatics? Um, as another you know, branch of the Christian tradition that thinks a lot about God speaks to me, Okay, uh, people who are just listening, you can't see this. You know, Marinus is, is like cheering in the background that this conversation has come up. Um, so that, that's one one question, and, and the other is um, because this way of thinking about about revelation and the affective really does actually lay quite a strong emphasis on the embodied nature of our um, cognition, of our consciousness, of our theologizing. Is this a useful thing to open up an avenue? to have discussion between theology and the natural sciences? Uh, and could that inform all kinds of different things? How we approach liturgy, for example, or, uh, uh, yeah. So those two are separate questions, an avenue towards the charismatics and an avenue towards the natural sciences. Thanks for that, James. Um, yes, Marinus was cheering and I was um, not as cheerful. No, but um, maybe I'll respond to that second query first before the first one really quickly, from my own point of view anyway. So with the second one, I think definitely so. Um, in my forthcoming book with TNT Clark, I do have a couple of chapters on affect theory. And what we know about affect theory, at least in the evangelical world, is that you know it tends to the body. It's good to know that your body conditions the way in which you think and the social embeddedness of, of where you are also conditions the way you think and so on. So thinking is not just a rational enterprise. It's a very embodied practice. But, but actually affect theory so much of the roots of it was actually in evolutionary um, theorizing. In other words, it's, it's at least some of the initial authors, in a way, tried to say that, well, actually, when you take a look at religion and why people are religious, it's actually because of our animalistic and evolutionary makeup. Religion is really just a byproduct of, of what we are physically speaking. That the reason why or the physical cause of why we're religious creatures is because religiosity is itself... Um, a result of evolutionary advancement or development or some, something like that. So lots of these authors actually perhaps implicitly imply that there is no reason for our religiousness, but rather there's a physical cause of our religiousness. So the only reason why we're religious is because we evolved that way, um, to simplify, right? But I try to show in my forthcoming chapters that actually if Bavinkus writes, what if um, the, our physicality itself is part of God's creation and our physically, physicality itself is impacted by this work of general revelation. So it's no surprising that we see a continuity between the religion of human beings and the religiosity of other animals because a part of this affect theory sort of research trajectory 
So take a look at, for instance, the religiosity of primates, the religiosity of other animal species to show that human religiosity is not that unique. Well, from a theological perspective, we shouldn't be surprised that other creatures share a kind of religiosity, and we shouldn't be surprised that even our embodiedness showcase this sort of religious tendency and religious inclination. So instead of saying, well, religion is therefore not really valid because it's just physically caused by our evolutionary makeup, why don't we switch it around and say, actually, because everything that is created is um, formed by God and God is dynamically revealing himself in every facet of creation, we should expect that even our embodiment showcases something about our who we are is made in God's image and how creatures themselves, again, are attesting to their createdness before its maker, if that makes sense. So that's my, my first thing. Definitely there's a, there's a connection here between Neo-Calvinism and the natural sciences. The, the, with regard to the first thing with charismatic theology, I think the connection between this and charismatic theology, at least from my own exposure of charismatic theology, I was converted in charismatic churches, um, is the connection between this general revelation and special revelation, right? Notice that when we talk about what people feel or intuit about God from general revelation, we use Romans 1, we use Psalm 19, we use Acts 14 and 17, was also cited in this episode. So we note from these special revelational passages what we are actually feeling before we got to these special revelational passages, right? So we don't just take at face value what people say they heard about God. We filter it through what we know from special revelation is supposed to be the actual result of general revelation, if that makes sense. So um, this this also responds to Marinus's concern about turning affect into an idol. Well, you turn affect into an idol when you disentangle general revelation from, from special revelation and you just take what people attest to their feelings at face value. So let me give one example of this. There was an article recently that said that if you take general revelation seriously, you should you should take the consensus or the, the survey results seriously of what people attest to when they think about God. In other words, there were surveys that asked people from children to adults, well, when you think about the God concept, what do you intuitively feel? What do you intuitively think about? And the result is, when people think about God or across the world, apparently, empirically, they testify to a kind of superhuman being, not the God of classical theism, who's simple, Trinitarian, and impassable, immutable, and so on. And so the, the conclusion of this article is, oh, actually, general revelation tells us that God is more like an open theistic God. So open theism is the product of general revelation. So if we want to be consistent with general revelation, we have to go with open theism, which to me... It's just a category error, right? <laughs> because of everything that we've been saying. So I want to say that we're born, yes, with this innate sense of God, but we are also born idolaters. And so we need the normativity of special revelation to tell us what we actually feel in general revelation, to disentangle what we feel from general revelation from our sinful suppressions and repressions of that same revelation. Yeah, thanks, thanks, uh, Gray. That was very helpful. And I, I. I totally agree with what you what you say about uh, about about charismatics and and that like the special revelation um, is is what's what always like needs to be in view um, and is is essential. Um, but I, I I was also thinking of something else when I um, um, a lot, some some time ago I, I made a, um, I wrote an article comparing Cowper's Our Worship um, with accounts of charismatic. Um, charismatic worship and 
what I found fascinating there that is that there were many many comparisons, and that for Kuiper the effective is not apparently not just like in his theory of general revelation, but also um, very much in his account of worship um, is is also essential. I've, I mean, th- there again, I remember a surprise reading him that for me reformed, and the way I was brought up did not account for that effective um, part so much as Kuiper did. And so much of that resonated with uh, the emphases found in charismatic liturgies and worship. Um, so I definitely think that uh, this new Calvinist emphasis also has, well, uh, has potential um, for, a, for a connection between charismatic worship, although there obviously are also uh, many issues still, um, and may also have to, may also speak um, uh, maybe not very different from what what James K. Smith is is um, is, is the issues he's addressing when it comes to the Reformed liturgy. Um, I think many of that is already in in Kuiper's Our Worship, and 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 now as you've shown in this chapter is also like deeply connected to the way um, God operates in this world and also how He has created human beings. So yes, I think there are definitely values there, and also ways in which Reformed liturgy should learn. Um, or maybe apply those principles where they maybe implicitly adhere to, but were not always visible in our Reformed liturgies. So yes, I definitely think that connection is there. On that cliffhanger, I think we have to end this uh, episode of Grace in Common. I guess listeners are probably all wondering as well um, what exactly primate worship is and looks like, given that Gray just, Dr. Satanto just mentioned it, just dropped that uh, that truth bomb apparently. Um, but we'll have to leave that for another day. Uh, for now, though, thank you for joining us for this conversation on Revelation and Reason here at Grace in Common. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do remember to subscribe using whatever podcast app you use. Uh, And until next time, thank you again for joining us. This is Grace in Common.